Good morning, everyone. Good to see you here this morning as we come together to worship the Lord together. Those of you who are on Zoom, we welcome you as well. It's uh, good to get together on the Lord's Day. Uh, this morning, uh, for today, we welcome uh, Luke, uh, Pastor Luke, and uh, Hannah, uh, Luana, I'm sorry, Luana Henderson uh, from uh, the Yukon, actually. They have a, a church there, a little church in the Yukon not coming from the Yukon today. They were visiting in southern Ontario, uh, friends there and churches there, but he graciously uh, volunteered and, and uh, when we asked him if he would come, and here he is today. So we thank the Lord uh, for that, that he's brought you here safely. I'm going to ask Pastor Luke now to come to uh, read the scripture and uh, lead us in prayer, if you would, please. Morning scripture reading, I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 24. Psalm 24. Psalm 24. We'll read the psalm in its entirety. Psalm 24, starting at verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath founded it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul unto vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Selah. Let us pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, thank you for this time that we could be gathered around you, God, gathered around your word, your revelation to us, Lord, of the coming of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lived, died, and rose again. Lord, thank you for salvation through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the Holy Spirit, God, uniting us in faith around our mutual love of Christ. Lord, we ask that we would, just as these everlasting doors would lift up their heads, that we would lift up our heads to you, God, acknowledging you as our Creator, our great God, our Governor, the head of the church, Jesus Christ. And we would submit humbly and joyously, God, to your will. Lord, we ask this morning that or a true blessing be poured out, God, and that Christ would be glorified in the church and in our hearts individually. And we would walk away, God, changed, truly changed, with a greater appreciation and understanding of the, the work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection, the new life is imparted to us through faith in him. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, brother, we welcome you and pray the Lord's blessing as you open the word to us. Good morning, Green Baptist Church. I thank you for allowing me and my wife to be here. It is a great honor and a privilege. We had a little tour of the church this morning. I got to see... The basement where I had met originally Carrie and Real down there, but I was on the screen, so it was great for everything to come full circle, finally. 
Yeah, I ask you to turn in your Bible to Genesis 1.1. This morning, I want to bring a passage that I hope to give God's people great comfort. And the passage will be Genesis 1.1. Now, you may think, well, why Genesis 1.1? Often when we think of Genesis 1.1, our minds and how we may apply it to our lives, our first thoughts may be the modern evolution, creation, science debate. You know, we live in a world where the Bible is uh, attacked or passed off, usually in the name of science. It's not. And there's heavy debates about evolution, creation. Can you trust the Bible? And that's where a lot of our minds go when we go to uh, Genesis. But I want to show you something uh, much more this morning, although that is still a very valid application. When I was in Bible college, we began to learn something called expository preaching. And that means to, instead of, you, know, you get up to the pulpit, I came out of a different denomination, where we would, there was very little Bible study in the preaching. You kind of just go up there and scream and shout something. Uh, we learned something to, uh, called uh, expository preaching, where you exposit, you take the text and its meaning and its context. So you begin to ask questions like, well, although there's a verse here, what's the author of that book speaking about? Where is he? Where is he? What's he gone through? What's the people he's writing to or speaking about gone through or going through? And you can look at the text differently and get your context. You just don't lift out the text with no background. So in Bible calls, I said to a friend of mine once, I wonder what the context is, or I'm thinking what the context of Genesis 1-1. And he said to me, I think the context for Genesis 1-1 is Genesis 1-1. Because <laughs> there's nothing else before. But the thing to keep in mind is the first four or first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, were revealed in the desert through the prophet Moses. That Genesis what Genesis one one wasn't written in Genesis one one. It was written much much later when the people of Israel came out of Egypt. They were wandering. They had just left slavery. God revealed Himself as the great delivering God with His mighty stretched out arm taking them through the Red Sea. Um, and then they wandered in the desert in, in Sinai and around the area before going into Canaan, where they had the Ten Commandments delivered and. Leviticus and the tabernacle was set up and Deuteronomy was given much before they uh, stepped into the promised land before Joshua. And they weren't uh, no longer Egypt or in Canaan. They were in the desert wandering in a hostile world. Now I want to read the verse and then we're going to jump in. The Bible says in Genesis 1.1, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Very simple line. But would have spoke volumes in the context of God's people when it was delivered. So they were in the desert. They had just left Egypt. Now for a second, just think of Egypt. To this day, the monuments of Egypt fascinate us. They're still considered the wonders of the world. Massive structures where we still don't know how they quite built them. Uh, Egypt at this time was probably the most powerful nation on earth. That with its wisdom and learning, architecture, agriculture, systems. I once read a history book saying that after the civilization of Egypt got established, uh, with its systems and the structures of society, that the only things that have really changed since then is gunpowder and steel. That they really built human civilization. 
They were powerful. And so you're in the desert as, a, as an Israelite. And remember when they ran out of food or water, where did they want to go? Back to Egypt. It wasn't just um, a place. It was, it, was true, it was a civilization. And so these poor wandering uh, Israelites in the desert, when they were oppressed and suffered hardship, they looked back at Egypt. It was so powerful, Egypt, they could worship their king as God, Pharaoh. That their, their, their Pharaoh, their king, was elevated to a God status. And, and, and worldly speaking, he is the most powerful man and the most powerful nation of the entire earth. Why not? As a, as a lost, dark uh, civilization. And they were oppressive, and they oppressed the children of Israel. They were impressive and oppressive. And then on this side, so Egypt over here, with its, its civilization and God king, but it had it all together. So you might think like, well, yeah, they're pagan, idolatry, oppressive, but at least they had food, water, civilization. You could survive there. And over here you had Canaan. And there was a mixture of different kingdoms and peoples and tribes. But if I could summarize what maybe they, what they stand out for in the Bible is depravity. Very, very depraved. The Canaanite civilization was very wicked, I won't speak to everything about it, uh, but things, rampant sin, sexual sin, child sacrifice, it was truly a depraved, if you call it a civilization, the mixtures of peoples that lived in Canaan. If you were to, I read something also that um, at this time, the Canaanite civilization wasn't just Canaan, like through Tyre and Sidon, it went all through the Mediterranean Sea, actually. You might have heard of a famous general called Hannibal who fought the Romans. He was actually a Canaanite. That same civilization spread over to Carthage. And they would do such things, and I've heard this, that they would, for example, they would adopt children to have in your family so you could, you could have certain children to sacrifice. It's, pretty, it's very wicked. Just to give you an idea of that the history does record the level of depravity of these people. So on one hand, they were between this powerful, um, oppressive, but uh, Im- impressive pagan civilization Egypt with its Pharaoh and God King. And over here, the Canaanites. And there were these wandering people depending upon God. And they would have wondered, how do I serve God without going back into Egypt, as they so often were pressed to do? Or to fall into the sin of the Canaanites, which they were so often wont to do. And God's word was given to them to give them a guide in this situation. And it's no different for us today, although we don't have Pharaoh himself in the, idol, the idols of Canaan, they just take different names. One thing you don't realize, or people don't realize, is the idols um, that they made, they reflected their dark hearts and human nature. That's why, because they were man-made or lies of the devil to appeal to people or made by men themselves, but they reflected men's dark hearts. That's why... When you look at different civilizations and cultures, they have things like war god, or a god of fertility, or a god of the crops. So whatever the people valued, they would express with religion. And they would also justify their human hearts with these gods. That's why you could have like a war god, or uh, your human vices would be expressed through religion. That's why they would have such things as, and I don't want to speak to uh, any more than I guess I use biblical language, they would have such things as like, Temple prostitution. Okay, and it, it, hard for us to imagine the mixture of sin and religion together, but in the ancient world, very common. 
because they expressed their depravity or their heart in religion. Now, modern day, we cut the middleman out, get rid of the idol, we put ourselves on the, on the stage and worship man. And, we, uh, and, and, and in the name of humanity, we have different idols now. And I was thinking about this earlier, instead of calling them Zeus or Jupiter or Baal or Ashtaroth, like the gods in the Bible, we just call them like isms, the transgenderism, the homosexuality, the communism, Marxism, or some other ism. And they sound political and fancy, but they're no different just than the gods of the old times as expressions of our depraved hearts. And, us, and if you've ever had like a government job, for example, right? I've seen this many times. You're asked to toe the line with government policies, which might force you to try to get an acknowledgement to some kind of uh, wicked system, something that would compromise your faith. Often back in the Yukon, where some of the only work is government, I would pray almost every day before work, thinking, Lord, I'll walk off the job. I will just walk off the floor. But just I ask for grace that I won't have to be confronted with something, as so often is. And as I go through the offices and places to work, there's the looming idol, the transgender flag on every wall that I see, acknowledged or not, but it's there. But just as they wandered in Israel, we wander now. And God gave them a revelation to bring them together and to guide them in the desert between Pharaoh and the idols, and for God's people now, between whatever we face in this world, between the sin, or we not, may not have Pharaoh, but we may have, like for example, what James says, the love of money is the root of all evil. You might just put yourself, the image of you, as the rich guy in the yacht. Let's, let's worship that and submit everything to that. So in all of this world, that although the idols are different, it's still the same spiritual confusion, depravity as they faced in the desert, And amidst all of that, Genesis 1-1 cuts in the middle, saying, although there's Pharaoh, although there's the idols here, and although you're wandering in the desert, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And it's like full stop. Whatever you're thinking, whatever you see on the left and on the right or where you're wandering, there is a God who made this world. You have a creator. And this morning, I want to show you that this is... should be great comfort to the Christian. And here's what I want you to understand. Genesis 1.1 is a declaration of a sovereign God, a challenge to the world, and a comfort to his people. Genesis 1.1 is a declaration of a sovereign God, a challenge to the world, and a comfort to his people. When this declaration is made, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, a few things happen. Number one, God's sovereignty is declared in the creator creature distinction when god is declared as the creator he is first declared as separate from creation he is not of creation often we'll see it in most religious systems that the creation and creature are mixed together we might even say that in our modern uh, adulterous world and secularism we're told repeatedly that we are creations there's nothing but creation there is no god but matter we hear that there's a God separate from creation, and being separate, he is beyond it, unaffected by it. And this is important, being the creator, he is over creation. And as such, a declaration of his power. If you are creation, you are under God. And if under God, you are accountable to God. And that as such, Genesis 1-1 1, 1 
is a challenge to man's authority. Is a challenge to man's authority. There is a God separate from creation, over creation, and it is not man. It is a statement of authority of God. You cannot be Pharaoh under God, the God King, if there is a God above you. You cannot worship Pharaoh if there is a God King above you. The idols of Canaan take on a different meaning under God. That, and to live a life like that is different if you're under God. That it puts Pharaoh, the statement of Genesis 1-1, that God created the heaven and the earth, puts Pharaoh and all the idols and other wicked inventions of men in their place under God. All the different religions and everything you see, it takes on a different meaning when you realize that you, it's not, because you can get mixed up in it. We all do. We all live lives. I have a job and family and I live in my city. And you can get caught up in things you see. But it's different when you realize, take a step back, that God created the heaven and the earth. Whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through, you go through under God. And it's a statement of the authority of God. And it knocks down the idols and the pharaohs and the things we encounter because the declaration of God as creator over the heaven and the earth puts man in the presence of God. If God made all creation, heaven and earth, and we are on earth, and we are part of creation, we are under God. And as such, now we live in a world that has a context that's under God. And as I said earlier, that comment about is Genesis 1-1 the context of Genesis 1-1, whether or not that's the case, Genesis 1-1 gives you the context to your life. Are you going through hard times? You go through those hard times under God. Are you feeling temptations of sin? Home, at work, wherever. You go through those as a creature on God's earth under God. Do you, how do I say this? Are you your own little Pharaoh? Do you not know Christ as Savior? Have you not laid down, I would say your life, your heart to Jesus, accepting and believing what Christ has done for you? And you live a life knowing that you might come here for whether your family brings you or you come because you like church for some reason, but you know deep down that you have never been born again and you never uh, took that step of faith in, in trusting Christ as Lord and Savior. You live under God. You are not walking in total autonomy uh, as your own Pharaoh, that you live, you, you may, and as God's people, back to us, that God's people, we may feel like we're in a desert between Pharaoh, between the idols, but we wander under God. We have our context. And this is why, this is why the world fights so hard, tooth and nail, against the idea of creation. I, I have a, uh, I work in a school and I have a side thing where I have an online English tutor for different tests. I had a student just a couple of days ago um, attacking the Bible, just out of nowhere in class. And they were attacking creation specifically. And the reason they do this is because creation takes them off their throne as Pharaoh and the presence of God demands a response from man. The reason I chose Psalm 24 as the, the reading, I'm going through it really fast, really fast. It's a few moments of thought to see this, 
The declaration of Psalm 24. Flip over there, give me another second to turn there. Psalm 24. Just a few, a few moments of thought real fast. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. For he hath established it upon the seas and established it upon the floods. That first statement, God is creator. He has made this earth. The next movement of thought, knowing that, knowing that God is creator, who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord or who shall stand in his holy place? That if, if I stand before God, that if I really acknowledge that I am a creature on God's earth, standing before Him, the next question is, how do I live in front of Him? How shall I ascend His hill? How, do, how would I get to God or be right? Because clearly, if I acknowledge that I'm the creature below a Creator, I've not put myself far, far below Him and under His control. And I am not control, in control of my own universe. Verse 4, in great grace, he that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who hath not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Great that we have grace from God. This is the generation of them that seek him, that seek thy face, O Jacob, Selah. That in the presence of God, there is a response that is demanded, just knowing that you stand before the Creator and the only valid response is worship. Verse 7, Psalm 24, verse 7. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Worship. The basic definition is your proper response to the revealed glory of God. In this case, acknowledging God as creator and then questioning how do I uh, ascend God's hill knowing it's righteousness, verse 5, from God. And to respond, and I, I turn, I, I worship Him. Think of Moses when he turned to God in the burning bush. He took off his shoes because he was on holy ground. You think of Isaiah when he saw God in the vision. He cried out, woe is me, of a man of unclean lips crying out. And you can also, I always think of uh, John in, uh, in Revelation 1 when he sees Christ glorified. He falls down at his feet. That the lost world fights against this idea that, that God is creator because it, respond, it demands uh, worship. But for God's people, it's a great a comfort knowing that God is over us. And for the purpose, we, should ask, we, we ask, who is this God? When we're, we recognize, establish that in this confusion, wandering in the desert, we have Pharaoh here, idols here, but there is a God, there is a creator, the natural question, much like they asked here, uh, how shall we ascend the hill? Who is he? How do I live in front of him? What's the next step? Who is this God? Well, we won't read through every verse, but I can just paraphrase real quick in Genesis, back over there, in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1 is an account of seven days of creation, and it is not, it's not a how-to, like a how-to like to build a, a universal world. That God, for the great work he did, is very brief in his descriptions, and he focuses very specifically, although it's exactly like he said it was. The details are, are, are zeroed in on to reflect attributes of God. 
And again and again, there's a commonality that's given uh, throughout Genesis. And I'm just going to summarize it in 131. Because again, he makes the light, he separates earth and animals, people. And a repeating line that comes up is, God saw everything, is 31, that he had made. And behold, it was very good. Throughout Genesis chapter 1, this word good will come up again and again. Good. He made this and it was good. And he made this and it was good. And he made this and it was good. And all creation, when he was, he was done, when he rested, it was good that this God, this creator that enters our confusing world is a good God. Then you might ask, well, but look around. It doesn't look like it. Look at the world. There's, there's sin, there's suffering, idolatry, blasphemy. Well, this is not because of what God created. This is because God did indeed create a good world and created man to live with God in this good world in the Garden of Eden in harmony with God and, and creation displaying the, the, the image of God to the world. But man, through the deceitfulness of, of Satan, uh, fell into sin and temptation and uh, sin entered this world. Mankind spiritually died and was driven from the presence of God and sin and corruption entered this world. Man was doomed to physically die and spiritually die and be driven from the presence of God. That is where we get the sin uh, that's around us. But there is good news. There is good news. Chapter 3, verse 15. God was talking to Adam and Eve and the serpent in the Garden of Eden after mankind was deceived and fell into sin. And God said... After he told Adam and Eve that you will die if you eat the fruit of this tree, and they did. But God said to them, and I will, verse 15, 315, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Sometimes a bit cryptic, people, if you on the first reading of it, but what he's saying is, first one thing he's saying is that what has now happened between the serpent and you, the serpent, uh, I'm thinking in Portuguese, living in Brazil for a while, I'm sorry. Um, yeah, sorry, betrayed. I'm thinking the word enganado in Portuguese. Betrayed and deceived man. Uh, yeah, it's deceived, not betrayed. It sounds like a uh, deceived man. And he's saying, God, what he's essentially saying is, I will undo this. And the undoing of this involves two things. One, uh, you will not die. He said you will die. And they did die spiritually, but God just didn't end it right there. So by implication, by saying, I will, uh, you, uh, what's the word again? It will bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise thy, his heel. So mankind will be wounded, Satan's head will be crushed. And so in that, implicitly, is a future for man. God is saying, you still have a future. It will involve the destruction of Satan, and the whole wounding, but there's a future. And it's called the Proto-Evangelium. It's, the first, it's a true promise because instead of just being sent off to die, end of story, God leaves an open door here. I mean, this, is, this is important when he says this, I will put enmity. This promise of God to undo, to defeat Satan ultimately, God said, I will. The good creator God made a promise that he would undo the deception of Satan and the fall of man. Throughout the rest of the Bible, this gets revealed progressively. First, uh, major steps to Abraham, that God chose a a patriarch Abraham. 
and told him, in you, the na- all nations of the earth will be blessed. So he said, I will crush the head of the serpent. And then it'll be through Abraham's seed. And then he told Moses that there, when Israel was brought together, that there would be a great prophet like Moses would come. So crush the head of the serpent through Abraham's seed. And there would be a great prophet. And then as Israel was put together, there was the king, um, King David. And God said that there will be a great king to sit on the throne uh, of David and to, to shepherd and guide his people and to protect them. And that as uh, they, they sinned and, fell, uh, and were taken to Babylon, God said there will be a great restoration one day. And this, a, a great deliverer would come to usher in all these great promises. And in the fullness of time, the Messiah was revealed. In Jesus Christ, our Savior, not just any Messiah, not just a prophet, not just a king, but the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, meaning that God himself would come in God the Son to undo and finally crush the head of the serpent. Turn over to John 1.1. 1, 1. John 1.1 1, 1 to one three. Speaking about Christ, John 1, 1 to 1, 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A great declaration of the doctrine of the Trinity. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. That Christ, the Creator, the Word. Drop down to verse 14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And in the fullness of time, the creator himself came to our earth to, un- to, to save us from something that we couldn't save ourselves from, being fallen sinners. That Christ would dwell among us, lived a perfectly righteous life, fulfilled the demands of the law, died on the cross at the hands of Pontius Pilate, was buried, and gloriously rose again. The Bible says the words here, we beheld his glory. It's truly a glorious story that he would come and live. And as he, he lived and died, that as a resurrection, for all who put their faith and trust in Jesus, that our sins attributed to Christ, and Christ's righteous life is attributed to us. And then we become, uh, in God's eyes, we become, the Bible uses a simple Though oft repeating it with deep word, we're in Christ. And turning over in John chapter 3.16, considering that now Christ has lived and died and rose again, the Bible says, the great invitation is, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And now that the way is open for all who would believe in Christ, uh, to receive uh, eternal life. And this work of God is so much a divine act and so much has nothing to do with this that the, the, the very language of creation is used to describe it. I'll tur- flip over quickly to 2 Corinthians 5.17 describing the new birth. The Bible uses in 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if any man is in, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. That and this is done. This, it, it, the salvation we receive is a, is the powerful 
regenerating uh, let's say regenerating work of the Holy Spirit where our heart of stone is taken away and our heart of flesh is given us. It is a spiritual birth, not of our own will. We don't will our own spiritual birth. It's a work of God in our hearts, but it is so much a work of God and so much uh, on His end that it is, a, it is the language of creation or use that the good Creator God saves us, and makes us new. That's why Christ could use language earlier in John chapter 3. Born again, new creature. There's all language of new, new in the New Testament. Because truly, we are made new through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit that we may wander. But now, as God's people, we don't just wander. We wander under the Creator as new creation, and as such, Genesis 1 is a great comfort to God's people. And it's a great comfort because God is the powerful, sovereign creator, and we can rest in his salvation. I want to say, but it's, it's truly his salvation. Turning to Romans 8.28. No, oh, I lied. Romans 8.30. Sorry. Romans 8.30. Romans 8.30. Speaking of God's salvation that he works in us, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and them he also justified, them he also glorified. Our salvation didn't just happen, like Christ died for our sins and there was a big hopeful, hopeful moment ever since, or whoever would just kind of choose Christ. Our salvation was ordained from the foundation of the world, that God predestinated his his children, not for anything that we have done in ourselves, not for any force, knowledge, or sight of things in us, but out of God's unmatchless and understandable love and compassion and grace, He chose us, and that He uh, He called with the Holy Spirit, that there was that time you remember, or maybe you don't, depends on uh, your own personal experience. I, I knew a guy who described it, I didn't have the audio-visual experience, as he would say, the, the dramatic moment, but you were at some point, you did go from death to life, and you went from just carnal affections for the world to that unexplainable, supernatural desire to follow Jesus. That love that surpasses any explanation. You see the glory in Jesus and the hope you have in Him. And whom He called, then He also justified. Receiving the great justification and benefits of Christ's death, we receive that. And whom He justified then he also glorified. Glorification is the final consummation when we, uh, when we reach our, when we, when we die and we move on to the next life, eternal life, and, and the resurrection. And that's called glorification. So sanctification is now when we grow in Christ's likeness. And glorification is when we finally do behold Christ face to face and our sins taken away completely. Our sinful flesh is gone. We're given new bodies and we're in the presence of God. But he glorified, and this is and and the language here is present that it's as good as done because God did it. He saved us. He worked, ordained, uh, completed that salvation was ordered between the Father and the Son to be um, or, uh, ordained by God, accomplished by Christ, and applied by the Holy Spirit. It's a triune salvation. You are only passive, and you receive. And knowing such that, that this is where the Creature-creator distinction relates to your salvation. That knowing that you 
um, are under the great creator, you can have true rest in a created, ordained, and planned and accomplished salvation. Christ said in John 10, in John 10, 29, I'll do 27, we'll do 27 to 30, 27 to 30. Christ speaking to a crowd says, my, let's see, 27, I said, sorry, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. This image that he has sheep, Christ is the shepherd with sheep, and an image of just holding his sheep in his hands, and said, no one will ever take them out of my arms. Not just me, the Father. And truly, this is a statement of Christ's love and salvation, believer security, and at the same time, a Trinitarian statement of Father and the Son. But knowing that, that we can truly rest knowing that we stand in our Savior's hand. And as such, too, we, we rest in our salvation. But second, as we wander this desert like the Israelites did, we don't need to fear, fear Pharaoh or fallen to sin with the Canaanites. For we have providence. I know there's a, a connection between this church and Toronto Baptist Seminary. It's a Reformed Baptist Seminary. Many of the churches in the, the seminary down in Toronto uh, will use something called the Second London Baptist Confession as their church statement of faith. It's, it's just an expression of like Calvinistic Reformed Covenant theology. Uh, it's very good. It's, I ascribe to it as well. And I was reading through it recently, and it's interesting when you start that confession of faith, it begins with the, scripture, uh, this, uh, the scriptures and the Trinity, the first two chapters, and we'll test if I get them all right. The Trinity, scriptures, God's decrees, the third chapter, creation is the fourth chapter, getting the foundations. I found it very interesting that the fifth chapter in the beginning, there's 32 chapters, is providence. So the Bible, God's decree, uh, what did I just say? Trinity. No, no, Trinity, decree, creation, and then providence. And the first point of providence, providence is the how God orders this world and how he works it all for his good, or his glory and the good of his people. The first point actually starts off with, and I can't quote it, didn't bring the, uh, right away, if you were to read it, it would say, the good creator God has ordained all things to work out. And it begins to explain, and that's a paraphrase, but in the Lenin Baptist Confessions, uh, hundreds of years old, used by many churches in past and present, it makes the immediate connection between creation and providence. That if, if we're in a world made by God, under a powerful creator, then we're living in a world under a powerful God. And that we've seen a good God. How could not this good God mean all things, uh, all things, uh, Good for uh, us as his, as his his sheep and his church and for we and for his glory and yes there is suffering in this world the Bible unapologetically tells his people that they will suffer suffer for sin either your own personal sin has consequences the sin of others affecting us persecution and tribulation or just the unfortunate reality of corruption that we do live in a, a, a sin-corrupted world, our bodies are decaying, 
but yet we have the great hope of the resurrection. But we go through that all with the hope of providence under, under a powerful, good creator God that as creator, he has uh, guide, uh, created this world and has created our lives, our world, and guided everything towards a purpose. And third, so we, God's people rest in God's salvation as creator. We rest uh, not fearing Pharaoh and embracing all things that come our way as providence. And third, as we embrace God as creator, there's an implication that I embrace my purpose or condition as creature. That if I put God in his right place, I have to be in my place. I can't be no idols under God. I can't be Pharaoh under him. And if I embrace God above me, then I embrace my position below him. And I embrace, I truly embrace the purpose for which I was created Colossians 1.16, turn over there briefly. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, Jesus, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. That as creation, we were made for Jesus Christ to live a life in harmony and worship of him. There is the unexpressible and unexplainable joy that when we receive the Holy Spirit, we can respond in joy to Jesus in a way the world can't. That the Christian has the great gift of being able to receive Christ for just Christ, to just look at Him, to just pray to Him, to just worship Him. That's why you were made. You were made to be in the arms of Christ as that sheep. And here in the church, as Christ said, my sheep hear my voice in plural. They follow me. We embrace how we live in the context of the church body. We're sheep together, following our Savior imperfectly. Okay, if you've been in church long enough, it's hard. It can be tough at times. You really have to look at Jesus Christ. It's hard with the other sheep can be very challenging, very challenging, but we're bound together by love of Christ, the Holy Spirit. And after saying, this is the end of the sermon, but knowing because we are created under God and we are created anew and brought together as the flock in the church, as living stones to a new building, we can live for God in comfort and joy. And this morning, I would ask you just to take a step back and look around. Wherever you are, look around even later as you go back to work and to your families. And although it might seem mundane, believe me, the desert would have been mundane for the Israelites, or difficult and harsh, or when you're faced with challenges, you face them under a creator God in his world who is guiding everything by his providence for your good as his sheep, for his glory. And if you don't know Christ, just step down off your idol, idol's position. You're not Pharaoh, take off your crown. You are not the creator and you are not in control. But great grace of God, the hand is extended for you to receive Christ and to turn to him and embrace your rightful position as creature under the creator. So this morning, as you go throughout your days, 
today, tomorrow, this week, and we'll, tonight I'll be preaching on the next few verses, to look around and remember the context for where you live is that God created the heaven and the earth. You live under God. And it's a great grace and a great opportunity. So if you don't know Christ, come to him and embrace that. And if you, do, if you are in Christ, embrace that as well. God created the heaven and the earth. Let's live a joyful, fruitful life honoring Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, I ask you to bless the hearts of these people. Thank you for the time to communicate your word. Lord, I can only ask an impression upon their hearts in the Holy Spirit's power. Yes, it's in Jesus' name. Amen.